And the heart of Christmas is this amazing gift of God's love that can't ever be described. Love that passes knowledge, passes all human comprehension, as Ephesians 3.18 says. The love that never fails, as 1 Corinthians 13 says. The love that shows us the very nature of who God is, as 1 John 4.7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Amazing how many ways we're invited by the Lord to, to experience that and to share that. And of course, for us here as we worship the Lord together in the body of Christ, we have countless opportunities in all of our lives. We know that and we face it every day. Uh, to be instruments of that love. I pray his love will be of great comfort to each of you today too. As we have, as Justin has mentioned in prayer, of course, we give thanks to God for his blessing on those we're praying for, for healing, recovery from surgery, situations at home that keep them, um, keep them away. But praise God, we're so grateful for live stream that now we're really able to be more together than ever before in, in these times with those situations. Well, we've been walking this journey, importing Advent, in a sense, into a very busy time and understanding uh, that we use this as a vehicle to just to help to refocus our hearts. And I had a humorous experience as I was thinking about today because I'd, I'd let that prophecy candle burn down and I had a replacement for it. And then it hit me, I'm not going to replace that one yet because one thing that that prophecy candle reminds me is that how long, oh, for how long the prophetic voice rang out, for how long the prophetic promise gave preparation and gave witness. And we might say prophecy burns a long time in the corridor of God's eternal plan to bring us his glorious salvation. And then, of course, the angel's candle. In a good way, I think of today as we go to the third candle, the shepherd's candle, is that I think of Advent in a sense as a window. Uh, better to say four windows. We opened the first window on the prophet's candle, reaching far into the past. That candle shows us the vast sweep of God's power across centuries of preparation. In our second week, the angel's candle that I think of as God's window opening on the unseen realm. There in the splendor of his glory, he dispatches flaming messengers to speak to his servants. And now in the shepherd's candle, God's word opens a window so close to each of us we can almost sense the wind blowing across the hills of Judea where shepherds watched their flocks by night. Yes, this candle opens a window on the world of work. It's a type of work that is just as relevant today as ever. On hillsides and verdant fields across the globe, there are still thousands of common laborers, just like the unnamed shepherds who tended their flocks near Bethlehem. This open window in the gospel shows us common hardworking people suddenly realizing the living God is there among them. Astounded by an angelic choir, these shepherds hurried to a crude cradle in a cave where the infant king of kings was to be greeted first, not by religious leaders or prestigious governors or philosophers, no, the first to arrive at the cradle of the Christ were shepherds. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 2. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were very afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. When I read this, I... I'm struck by another parallel prophet, prophetic promise of Jesus in Micah chapter 5 where the prophet 720 years before his birth foresaw that God would send his king to this little town of Bethlehem. And he said, but you Bethlehem, though you were small among the clans of Judah, yet out of you will come the one who will rule for eternity because his goings forth have been ever and of old. English translations wrestle with the right way to convey that expression. The, the eternity past, the infinity of God's awesome, sovereign glory. And then he chooses this little town of Bethlehem to be born. And in that same passage, the prophetic word pictures the Lord himself, not only as the one bearing the scepter of rulership, but also as the good shepherd. For two verses after that famous Bethlehem prophecy, he is foreseen in these words, for he, the Messiah, will stand and shepherd his flock in the majesty of our God. What a beautiful symmetry of images that God sends us when he actually taps on the shoulder real laboring shepherds on the hillsides of Bethlehem in the evening in which the Lord Jesus was first breathing earth's air. So for a minute, just imagine the light night shift for a shepherd. Watching over the flock was essential to keeping predators away and being sure no sheep wandered off the rocky cliffs. Their work had natural and spiritual significance. They're in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Bethlehem was like a little tiny village suburb to Jerusalem. Wool derived from the shearing of the sheep was used to make clothes. Healthy sheep were also crucial for the temple sacrificial system. These Bethlehem shepherds supplied the temple authorities with lambs to be sold for those who required to come to the temple and needed a sacrifice for their offerings to God. And yet, as important as those animals were for the temple ceremonies and the priestly services, the shepherds were considered nobodies in the eyes of the authorities. Never in a thousand years would any of those shepherds been chosen to serve in some visible way in the holy precincts of the temple by the Pharisees and the chief priests of the law. The very idea that God would send angels to come to common shepherds and then dispatch them to the Messiah's cradle would have stunned the temple authorities. And yet, that is exactly what happened. And friends, like these shepherds, each of us here, have been given common tasks in life. In Christ, we're assured that serving in his kingdom is the source of our most enriching motivation. And yet, in ourselves, in our humanity, in our sinfulness, none of us could claim a right to any of the truly holy things. We were excluded by virtue of our sin. But there are doors into God's realm that we can't open cannot open unless God steps in. So we might say that in Christmas, God has indeed stepped in and turned human limitations inside out. We join these eager shepherds in going to see Jesus, to see the dwelling place of the infant Messiah, and then to bow in honor and reverence before him. May we today join these shepherds in humble adoration of the Lord Jesus and run to carry the good news, to behold his glory, and to magnify 
The Messiah who chooses to come in the tiniest and the most vulnerable way and then invite us, the commoners, to gather at his cradle. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, with amazement, we stand alongside these shepherds. As angels filled their night sky with glorious news, may your light burst upon this place, this congregation, in all of our hearts and our homes. Open our eyes to see your royal majesty in such an unlikely place. Take us to the manger king with grateful songs of praise. We come now to celebrate your birth, for you alone are worthy of our praise. Send us, as you sent those shepherds, to bring the news of your birth and the power of your kingdom to others. In the mighty name of our Messiah, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Our kids' classes, Pathfinders and Explorers, have their time together now. And um, we are, again, so grateful for each of you that are making plans to be a part of our celebration of the birth of Jesus next week. I think of the birthday breakfast for Jesus event, something that sort of gradually, almost uh, unintentionally, became a kind of a tradition for our church. Started as the kids' class event a number of years ago, and then one year, because of the way the calendar fell out, we decided to do it as a whole congregation, and it's just been a joy every time. And it's a, it's a turning point, it's a break in this very busy season, it's a fun, festive fellowship time, uh, and uh, we invite you to be a part of that, and I especially want to express our appreciation to uh, the three coordinators, Maureen, Marsha, and Jody, who are doing so much to get ready for next week. So uh, let them know that you'll be here, and there's an invitation to bring something with you if you can, and uh, above all, we always like it to be known for these fellowship events. I like to call them agape meals that um, it's also a time to invite a loved one, a friend, a neighbor. Please feel free to bring anyone with you. This is an open door, an open-hearted time to share in the love of Christ and celebrate his birth together. I'd like to invite you today to open your Bible to two places in the Gospels. One is, the again, the first chapter of Matthew, uh, where we spent two weeks looking at uh, the significance of maybe one of the oddest sections of Scripture that grabs people or surprises people often when we're relatively new to reading the Bible of how the very first page of the New Testament presents us with no less than 56 different names, quite a few of which are a little difficult to pronounce. And that fact we spent two weeks talking about. Why was that genealogy there? What does it mean? What are some of the features of that? But then that leads us into the 18th verse, and I'm going to ask you to find Matthew 1. Again, what I like to refer to as the power of page 1 in our Bibles, in that it's that first we saw that it is an anchor that brings all the powerful truths of the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and anchors that in real history. And we saw that there was both a need in uh, the purpose of the writing of the Gospels for the predominantly Jewish communities of the Israel proper and Antioch and then areas further out, those predominantly Jewish areas, to get the full explanation of how in every particular the virgin birth of the eternal only begotten Son of God fulfilled prophetic promises God had made on on a, on a trajectory in which the vectors of those various promises would have looked impossible to apply to the same human being. And yet in God's wise preparation, and Matthew's task is to make this crystal clear predominantly, first and foremost, to that audience. But we spent some time two weeks ago looking at the fact that Matthew's purpose was far more extensive than that, in that the Jewish people were to be a vehicle of God's seed of mighty deliverance to the entire globe. And in Galatians chapter 3, we saw that it was that exact purpose is why every, poor, every part of the gospel prepares us to see the word of the living God reaching every corner of the globe. 
So first it's an anchor that puts all the good news anchored into the facts of real history. Secondly, we saw that it is a bridge, that genealogy section is a bridge from law to grace. And then today, I want to look with you at verses 18 to 25 and think of this, maybe a slightly different imagery. I think of it, in a sense, as the gift wrap of God. The gift wrap of Almighty God for His dwelling among us. Now, of course, at this time of year, we all are involved with um, gift wrap of different, in different ways. And I can recall as a kid that I really got into this whole Christmas shopping thing, even as a young kid. For some reason, it kind of grabbed my imagination certain times closer to the date of Christmas that I wanted to be ready to bring those gifts, and I would find myself sometimes scrambling, going through a mall, looking for things for people, and then running to a place where I could get them wrapped. And, and I got to thinking about that as I looked at uh, this uh, presentation of the virgin birth in Matthew 1, because once again, what we find here is God giving us the wrap in humanity, the wrap in his gift of the only begotten Son of God into a real, tangible family that we find that God was giving us his gift, but using the human factors of life, including family life, to bring to each of us an awareness of his eternal glory. Now, only God could accomplish such a thing, but one way to think about the gift wrap itself is that um, many times wrapping paper is designed to be very attractive and very beautiful, of course, and I can remember getting a gift from somebody once that was so beautiful. Becky and I had this gift that it was so absolutely beautiful and perfect, it was like you were tempted to not open it because the, the, the packaging was so beautiful. But things have changed in most of our lives now, and how many of you have noticed for a lot of people, the gifts that are coming and going are in Amazon boxes? So what we're getting now is uh, much more, most, most of the time, or a lot of the time, we're getting um, packages in a very plain brown container because of the distances and the challenges that we all have in connecting. So in many cases, unless it's under a tree beautifully wrapped, then these are features of our life today. Well, I think it may be a stretch of an analogy, but I, it helps to think of it this way, that God uses the family and family experience as a, as a kind of gift wrap for his only begotten son. A few weeks ago, I talked a little bit about families and how the fact that all of us face the fact there are no perfect families and that all families have things that are unusual, odd, maybe eccentric. You not, now you say you've left preaching and gone to meddling, Pastor. No, you've got areas in your life where if you look at it, people have a tendency to think of the, maybe the, the awkward or the uncomfortable things about their family. And, uh, and, and subconsciously, people tend to compare family experiences with others. It's, a, it's an absolute waste of time to do that because every single individual is unique in the eyes of God. And we were looking at the fact that God has used this dynamic of the family to, to enable us to tap into the value of what we talked about earlier in learning to love. So I wanted to ask you to think of it like this with Matthew 1 and then also in your Bible open to the second chapter of Luke and we'll be looking at that in a few minutes. But to think about the fact that there is an intriguing parallel in the opening of the New Testament and the opening of the Old Testament. It's a parallel that might easily be overlooked, but it's valuable when we come to the virgin birth of Jesus. Because one parallel fact about Genesis 1 and Matthew 1 is that the value of family 
the sanctity of marriage and the goal of God for the family, for the bearing of children and the being fruitful and multiplying is embedded in the creation decrees. And lo and behold, here on page 1 of Matthew 1 of the New Testament, after that bridge and that anchor that we saw in the genealogy, we have nothing less than a moving insight into a very human family in whom God has chosen to come in the person of his son and dwell. Now, that's not an insignificant parallel between the Old and New Testament. The fact that family, the sanctity of marriage, the value of bearing children, the sanctity of the sexual relationship as God intended it, where Genesis 1 gives us that initial uh, purpose statement, let, them, let us make man in our own image and in our likeness and make them, give them dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and go forth and be fruitful and multiply. And then that purpose in Genesis 1 is expanded in the second chapter to, very, to be very specific, to zero in in a concrete way, to say that this, this overarching decree of the Creator, that family would be in the very center of His design for the earth, that's expanded in that second chapter of Genesis to be very specific about how that would occur for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and those who were two shall become one flesh. So this becomes an a interesting kind of gift wrap from God in that he, the angel comes, and if you'd read aloud with me what the angel said to Joseph after he discovered with some questioning in his mind something that would have been totally unexpected for a faithful, synagogue-attending, law-observing Jewish family, that he discovered that Mary was expecting. And while he had thought about it and, and, and dwelt upon what, what would this mean and considered in a, in a very moving example of godly integrity, Though under the law that they lived under in that time, in their community standards, she would have been considered an outcast. And in fact, it would have been really his duty, according to Deuteronomy 22, 21, that he would ha have her excluded and, and divorce her in the way that they used the word divorce, this, the breaking of a solemn betrothal prior to the actual wedding. So these were all, these thoughts all going through his mind. And read aloud with me what the angel said when the angel appeared to him in a dream. Let's read it. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Here on the opening page of the New Testament, God has wrapped the incarnation the very design of Almighty God to take upon Himself humanity and to be like us in every single human aspect except without sin. And, and in that design that God could have done it, we know, in an infinite number of ways. He, he could have brought his Messiah and even promised his Messiah in some anodyne way, in some way that had nothing to do with a family relationship. But no, God designs this so that it would pinpoint for us the gift wrap of God <laughs> is a man named Joseph called to be, as we've already seen, the foster father of the baby who is the biological child of Mary, and the son of the living God. In that 16th verse, as we saw, the entire genealogy wraps up in that concluding phrase, that he was the son of and the husband of Mary, of whom was born 
the Christ. So when we think of it this way, then we can sort of begin to see maybe even more so why in the text of Matthew chapter 1 and the entire book of Matthew indeed, that the word fulfilled in the original Greek, the notion of a, of a filling up to the brim is used over 16 times in very emphatic ways from Matthew 1 to Matthew 28. And in each case, the emphasis is on these concrete, real, historical events took place. And then that recurring phrase, like a choir singing an anthem over and over again, that it might be fulfilled. Say it with me. That it might be fulfilled. The Greek word used in the text of Matthew 1 for fulfilled signifies an empty vessel. It's like the prophetic word is this empty goblet, a chalice, if you will. And it is waiting to be filled with the wine of God's redeeming power so that the events when they fill that vessel could only have been orchestrated by Almighty God. And for this particular fulfillment, the one that launches the entire Gospel of Matthew, we are told that it is in his name. It is in the very name of Yeshua. The name that the angel is giving Joseph in advance to be given to that baby when nine months later, Joseph, the husband of Mary, will have the high honor of holding God's infant Messiah in his arms. And when that happens, he tells him in verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Embedded in the name of Yeshua is the very name of Yahweh, the name that traditionally the observant Hebrew scholars and scribes tried in every way possible through various circumlocutions, ways to get around using the word Yahweh because it was considered to be of such a magnitude of expression that one should only speak the name in very, very careful and selective ways so as not to break the commandment, you shall not take the name of Yahweh in vain. Well, embedded within this name of Yeshua, Yahweh who personally saves. The salvation of Yahweh has come now not in some, in some uh, military campaign of an allied uh, tribe that is going to now help the Jewish people overturn the Roman authority. No, 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 that, that would have been the dream of many of the zealots of Jesus' time, that, that their thought of a kingdom coming was a kingdom that would, that would vanquish in a visible and tangible way the Roman authorities of their day. But no, this coming, this salvation, this saving, this delivering is of such far more great-reaching significance than any political or military campaign. No, this gets to the very depth of the curse of sin that is embedded within the heart of every human being. And it is in this that Yahweh comes not to just sin salvation, not to just sin deliverance, and note that it's more than forgiveness. As wonderful as forgiveness is, the angel doesn't say, call him Jesus because he'll forgive his people, as in past transgressions. No, it's more than that. It is he will save them from their sins. And how will he do this? Well, there's a parallel in Isaiah 12 and in Ezekiel 34 that is very significant in that when the prophetic voice came out and said, God, you have every right to be fiercely angry with me. And, and yet I find in Isaiah, he says, that suddenly I find in your promise that your anger is turned away. And now the Lord Yahweh has become my strength and my song. And I exalt your name 
for the saving power that you're making known to me. It is woven into all of the messianic prophecies that Almighty God will bring the salvation that is most deeply needed in the soul. But in Ezekiel 34, he switches to the imagery of a shepherd. And in rebuking the failing shepherds, the, the deceptive shepherds, the corrupt shepherds that served in vast parts of the Israeli experience in Ezekiel's day, God says, woe to those shepherds who don't feed the flock. Woe to those shepherds who neglect the weak and the, and the needy among them. Woe, woe, woe to the shepherds. And then the scene shifts in Ezekiel 34, and Yahweh says, it is so bad out there on those fields, <laughs> so that's my translation, that I will personally come to shepherd them. You've heard the old line from parents that said, don't make me come down there. God was saying, I'm coming, and I'm going to shepherd them personally. And when Jesus spoke of his role as good shepherd in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, the emphasis in, the, in the, the way the Greek expression is given, I am the good shepherd, does not just mean Jesus saying, I am a shepherd, or I am even the good shepherd. It is, I am that good shepherd. That is, the one Ezekiel prophesied of. I'm, that's the shepherd I am. And that's why the Jews took up stones to try to kill Jesus. Because they knew that in saying, I am that good shepherd, in that, they were meeting Yahweh in the flesh. Well, as I thought about this whole story, and if you look in your text there at verse 23 to 25 of Matthew 1, we see the fulfillment of the prophetic word of Isaiah, the virgin will be with child, and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, another descriptive name, meaning God with us. And then look at the 24th verse of your own Bible, would you? I'm reading the New American Standard translation here today. Verse 24 of Matthew 1, And Joseph arose from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took her as his wife, and kept her a virgin, until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Yeshua. Well, here we have in Scripture um, the, the starting point of what I think of as an amazing odyssey. It is an odyssey of obedience, a characteristic mark of everything that the Bible says about the Lord Jesus is that his obedience to God the Father gave him the pathway that was defined for him to prepare to bring this salvation. Now, Joseph's story is a wonderful example of an odyssey of obedience. And it reminded me, as we look at Joseph himself, again, the gift wrap of God in a common family, and what kind of man would God choose? Well, the events that unfold in, in uh, Joseph's life um, are compressed examples of the kind of, the kind of qualities that are vital for healthy relationships and the family. And it reminds me of a famous series of maxims that a, that a, a, a notable person in the twenty. Uh, 21 era said about management and military leadership in our country. And this, these maxims went like this. When you go to war, when you go to battle, when you go into a difficult situation, you know there are going to be three types of things you're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to deal with some known knowns. There are some things you know that you know that you are going to have to prepare for. It's true in our family life. Secondly, there are some things that are known unknowns. Some things we know are going to come across the horizon, and we won't know exactly what to do, but we know 
to be generally prepared. But then he said, also in military planning, and this is true in family life, and anything that's important to you today, there's a third problem, and that is the unknown unknowns. Now, when I look at um, the life of Joseph, what I see is someone who faced all three of those. Let's think of the first one, the known knowns. Once he learned from the angel that he was going to have the responsibility of caring for Mary as an expectant mother, he knew from his own experience many of the things that would, that would take place with that. And, and yet, another thing, if you flip over to Luke chapter 2, enters the picture, and that is a known unknown. That is, in the days of Caesar Augustus, a decree went out that all the known world of their time, that region and all of the under the Roman Empire, and all of that which comprised Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and Syria, was going to have to go to be taxed to their original home places. Now, at this point, since it happened roughly every 14 years, Joseph would have known there's some unknowns, but he roughly knew what he was going to have to do when he got to Bethlehem. And yet then, on, in the process of being the earthly guardian of the infant Messiah, he encounters all kinds of unknown unknowns. And as the story uh, uh, unfolds, it, it decompresses many of the issues that, that many of us have to deal with. We have to deal with situations that are far beyond what we know. When I look at uh, the path that the Lord led me in my life, I can cite all three of those and a lot more unknown unknowns than I ever would have factored on. Read with me from the book of Psalms what Jesus said about an obedient heart and we see this in the gift wrap of Joseph's life. Would you read it aloud with me? Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. It's remarkable that this messianic prophecy not only was fulfilled in the lips of the Lord Jesus, as we read in Hebrews chapter 2, but also in the man chosen to be the guardian and caretaker of the infant Messiah. A notable thing about Joseph that caused um, Dr. Joel Gregory to refer to Joseph as the forgotten man of Christmas is that Joseph, for the significance of his role in this gift wrap of God, in all of the events of Joseph's life, from, that are recorded in Scripture, there is not one word recorded that Joseph said. Oh, go over to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to uh, 49, and you get wonderful words from the lips of Mary, as well as in other places. And yet, Mo Joseph, we might think of as the silent but very effective leader taking her through the paths of these unknown unknowns. Oh, of course, he communicated well and communicated effectively, we know. But it is notable that what the Bible emphasizes about him is not what he said, but it is what he did. We could wrap around the life of Joseph this, uh, this understanding that Joseph's life pictures exactly what the Messiah was promised to bring, an obedient an obedient heart and attitude. In fact, the events in Joseph's life are an odyssey of obedience. Think, for example, one of the things that certainly we can all relate with is that think of this amazing supernatural encounter that Joseph has had. He has just had this dream that lets him know that his beloved Mary whom he wanted to marry and loved with all of his heart. Now, not only could he take her as his wife, keeping her virginity until the, after the birth of the infant Jesus, and in that wondrous connection that Joseph had that primary responsibility, he still had to go back to work every day. 
He was still in that carpenter shop. He was still going to retrieve his sources for wood in the forest to contract with others to cut down lumber, to haul the lumber to his shop, to, to, to chart out a design, to get his tools and keep his tools in order, to deal with the bartering and the buying and the selling that everybody involved in that kind of a culture would experience. Joseph was a busy guy. And God's word is telling us, in a sense, that his actions reflected his faith in God, not only when we get to the travel to Bethlehem, but even, yes, in the carpenter shop. Not only that, but his actions of mercy and care for his beloved Mary are another example of the silent outworking of an obedient odyssey in that while they were betrothed and having first gotten the news before the angelic message, Joseph was minded, it says, to put her away privately so as not to expose her to public disgrace. His life is a classic example of the truth of Psalm 85.10 where the Bible says... Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This Joseph, this man, on page one of our New Testament, who played such a vital role in the outworking of the redemptive events of the coming of Messiah, God uses him as a silent witness of this powerful fact. There's a kiss. There is a connecting. There is a value to being people who hold high to truth at every, at no, at, at, with no compromise and yet show merciful care to human individuals in that war for the soul. When Mary goes into the hill country, a three-month period takes place after the angel's announcement, after Joseph takes her into his home, and we're not told in Scripture even what kind of questioning and murmuring and rumors or gossip might have happened in the community where now Joseph and Mary are married earlier than had been planned and are together with the child that they're expecting in her womb. And yet the Scripture draws a veil of silence over it, I think, to accent for us that Joseph was a man of action and integrity. And for three months, after Mary has gone to meet Elizabeth, and the babe, John the Baptist, six months further beyond in that pregnancy, leaps in Elizabeth's womb at the sound of Mary's voice. And Elizabeth and Mary rejoice together in what both of them are experiencing, a miracle of natural childbirth, natural parentage in the case of Elizabeth, a total miracle, being able to conceive past the point of normal childbearing, and then a far more extraordinary miracle in the case of Mary, where the birth is a virgin birth. In all of these aspects, we have a man, we have Joseph, who is faced with unknown unknowns. When the decree goes out from Caesar Augustus, what we find in the case of Joseph is a response of immediate initiative and careful follow-through. Everywhere Joseph goes, it is like a kind of elegant painting of the truth of James 1.22, be not hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. In fact, when you get over to that second chapter of Luke, and just before we close today, I'd like you to see it. These words so familiar to us, so much a part of, I'm sure, your Christmas time of reflection. But they bring to us a poignant scene that caused many people early in the experience of the early church to think of Luke as an artist with a quill. 
That is, a portrait artist in the pinning of his gospel. And if you look with me at verse 4 and 5 of uh, Luke 2, you see the words, Joseph also, Joseph also went up from Galilee. It's stated so plainly in such a non-sensational way, and yet in every phase of Joseph's odyssey, it is his action that is God's gift wrap around the miracle story of his son. So in that fourth verse we read, From the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Way back in the 6th century, eons and eons ago, in a land far away, a reader in the Constantinople Cathedral had imagined a scene in which a painting of Mary was found in Jerusalem, and it was quickly revealed that the painter was Luke. And though that was a legend, it dramatized what the believers of that day came to understand. With a deft and careful artistic touch, God has used Luke's gospel to paint a vivid portrait of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and yet that painting, that imagery, that understanding of the astounding honor given to the mother of the Lord would have been impossible had it not been for that man of action, that man of integrity, that man of purpose alongside her. And I, I think when we get to that moment that's so iconic, though it's captured by only one phrase, if you look in your Bible at the last part of verse 7, the simple phrase, not even a complete sentence, because there was no room for them in the end. Now, that, that one half sentence has generated in, in an, uh, just an absolute cornucopia of wonderful imagery, of stories, of our art, of music, of imaginative narrative throughout the centuries. And it's not surprising to us that it would be. Because though the details in Luke's canvas are sparse, oh, they evoke for us such a rich understanding of what Mary and Joseph must have faced. For whatever the reason, oh, people have some portrayed the innkeeper as cruel and heartless. There's no evidence of that at all. Uh, and, and, and yet, what was portrayed there is a simple human fact that you and I deal with. In this time period of inflation and higher costs than ever before in people's lives, of the struggle to make ends meet, of the responsibilities of husbands and wives for a, across a wide range of details in life, all of us encounter obstacles that are, feel just as daunting to us as a man with his expectant, expectant wife on a beast of burden finding out that the little hostel at the old home place of his ancestors is completely out of space to lay down and have a baby. And in that encounter, as in the other steps that Joseph takes, there is a powerful and wonderful fact that we can give thanks to God for and learn from, and that is simply that Joseph carries these, these um, responsibilities out in such a way as a husband and a father that his actions, think of this, his actions, the humble actions of a man of integrity for whom there's not one word recorded in Scripture of what he said, but the spotlight of God's redemptive plan is on the humble actions of a husband and father who was given the task to shape the future human experience of the Son of God. A famous French painter is one of many that has conveyed that scene in the carpenter shop where 
At various ages, of course, Jesus was alongside his father as an apprentice learning the carpentry trade. Most likely his other brothers, the other, the full, the, the uh, biological children, the full biological children of Joseph and Mary. Because we know that Joseph, Jesus grew up in a human family with siblings. <laughs> and, and this French painter, like many others, have tried to capture the scene. And here's Joseph at the carpenter table, and Jesus is by his side, and he's, he's playing with something as a smaller child would do. And the way the light gleams in from the window and shines on the workbench of, of the carpenter, it gives a vivid portrayal of the cross just underneath where Jesus is playing. Everything that Joseph did, man of action, man of integrity, man of patience, man of mercy, man of planning, man of initiative, a man of endurance, a man of compassion, all of those acts, as common, ordinary as they might seem, they became God's tools for the shaping of the very life that His only begotten Son would experience. I want to invite you as we pray to ask that an odyssey of obedience to the Father could get embedded in our souls in this Christmas time. And, and hopefully that in hearing just a few fragments of what happened with Joseph, because we just barely scratched the surface, we might think of it not as obedience being some drudgery or overpowering duty, but that we might see it with the joy of knowing how responding to God with an obedient heart joins us with the joy of the Savior's words in the volume of the scroll, it's written of me, I come to do your will. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking Jesus' name on this, in this experience of life, Lord, where we know everyone here has some clutter, some conflict, some obstacle, some serious impediment in their path. Every husband and wife here together today has points of pressure and need that we need to yield and bring unto you. And Lord, we thank you for the mighty gift of the redeeming infant Messiah who gives us that assurance that you gave to Joseph to apply to his stepson, Emmanuel. The God with us was the one that he sent. And yet, just like Joseph, there are tasks and responsibilities that for us might just feel detached from the spiritual realm. But Lord, give us a heart to see our obedience to you in the odyssey that Joseph experienced, being a willing, eager, consistent, faithful follower of your directions. Lord, make this a day that the common tasks of love and obedience and care and compassion are elevated to a place of your calling in every life. In Jesus' name, amen.